Hello and thank you for checking out this episode of Season 2 of the From the Frontline podcast. Each episode we'll be interviewing a key voice from the NHS or social care to discuss some of the key challenges and changes that impact the treatment and care we all receive. Throughout this podcast series we'll be answering some of the big questions which face health and social care today, such as why are there massive delays in A&E, how do we beat the NHS winter crisis, and how can we make the future of digital health accessible for all. We hope that you'll finish each episode knowing a little bit more about the major NHS headlines and what needs to change if we are to deliver the best possible care for everyone in the UK. The From the Frontline podcast is brought to you by PLMR Healthcoms, who are part of the PLMR group. We hope you enjoy this episode. Professor Tony Young, uh, National Clinical Director for Innovation at NHS England. Thank you for your time uh, this morning. Great to be talking about all things NHS 75, particularly focusing on the adoption of innovation in the NHS. Just as a starting point for our conversation, it would be great to get a little bit of sense of your background, how you came to be in the current role that you're in, but also if you have any general reflections on where the NHS is at when it comes to the adoption of innovation. If someone wishes to turn around to you and just ask on the street, what does innovation in the NHS look like today? It'd be great just to get what your sort of top line answer would be. It's, it's funny, no one's ever turned around to me on the street <laughs> and asked that question. <laughs> funny, the public are interested um, in other things. I they're think, lost. Um, so I'm, I'm still a consultant surgeon in the National Health Service. I'm a practicing urology consultant at um, South End Hospital in Essex. I'm also an associate medical director there responsible for innovation across what is the 10th largest foundation trust in the country, now Mid and South Essex, and also lead our research strategy there. Um, my academic role is at Anglia Ruskin University, where I lead on innovation and entrepreneurship and direct that. And that's really because as a junior doctor, I did four startups, remortgage my house, um, nearly lost a lot, um, but actually learned an enormous amount from the commercial and startup world. Um, and then around 10 years ago now, got invited by Sir Bruce Keogh, the then National Medical Director, to come and take on this new role here at NHS England as the National Clinical Director for Innovation, now called the National Clinical Lead for Innovation, um, which was about how do we get the latest, greatest things taken up in the NHS? How can we grow our life science economy? And can you support that? Um, become a senior clinical advisor on healthcare and life science innovation, not just to the NHS, but across government ministries, public sector, private sector, and, and foreign governments and healthcare systems that come and talk to us so we can share you know, information and learnings around that. And then really, um, uh, Bruce said, um, just make us a go-to place on the planet for healthcare and life science innovation, but you've got no money and no power, which is the NHS way, if you know it. Um, go and see what you can do. And, and that means I get involved in lots of policy work. Um, and so reflecting on the NHS at 75 um, and what a long way we've come since 1948. Um, the, um, uh, so I would say the greatest innovation of the modern era is in fact the National Health Service itself. It brought in universal healthcare. Before the NHS existed, um, people had to worry about, am I going to put food on the table or am I going to be able to afford to pay to go and see a doctor, to pay for health care? And people in our country didn't have to worry about that when the health service was 
and founded all those years ago. And almost every other modern developed country in the world has now some form of universal healthcare coverage in place um, as a result of that. It's um, been incredibly innovative across its 75 years. Oh, 1949, the first intraocular lens implant in St. Thomas's Hospital. We developed and pioneered that and the whole technology here, and particularly through the war, was a big problem. And now it's second nature to us, isn't it? The ability to do that. Total hip replacements. Um, uh, I think that was 1968 um, at the Wrightington Hospital. Um, uh, CT scans, Sir Geoffrey Hounsfield, Nobel Prize awarded for that, developed in this country. MRI scans, again, another Nobel Prize awarded for that. And I think the first um, clinical whole body scan was actually performed in Aberdeen. And their MRI scanner was then put into St. Bartholomew's Hospital. And it was, I think, the first at scale um, deployment in clinical practice of MRI technology. Um, and then, of course, coming up to the millennium in 2000, you know, we were partners in the whole genome project, uh, human genome project, in decoding the first human genome and then unlocking the benefits of um, genome screening. So if you have cancer um, in our country now, um, uh, people are offered um, uh, the ability to have that um, uh, genotype so we can see what agents you might be sensitive to for treatment and what ones aren't going to work. So we've taken, I know it's not easy, I know it's hard, I know we haven't got it all done, and I know um, lots of people are highly critical and say, if only you took all this up, and I understand that. Um, and it's, 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 it's really easy to sit in your armchair or on the sidelines and uh, criticise. I do that when I'm watching football on the television. I don't, I don't know about you. It's much more difficult to be on the field kicking that ball around and playing and trying to score the goal. And so I think um, I invite people, I invite industry, I invite partners, wherever they are, to come and work with us, to help us, to help us gain insights. We, we haven't got all the answers in the National Health Service. Um, in here at NHS England, we certainly haven't got the answers. But are we prepared to work in open partnership with our citizens, our patients, our carers to look at how we do new things with our hospitals, with our universities, with industry, with charities to look at how we might do things better and learn more? Yeah. Are there a whole number of what I think are world leading innovation programs we have at the moment? Absolutely. And I'm happy to give you any uh, number of examples of those. So it's a work in progress and you know we were the first nation in the world and as far as I'm aware the only nation that have appointed a clinician to provide leadership in a national level for healthcare um, innovation so instead of it being you know um, someone who wasn't still practicing on the front line seeing the very real issues that patients carers relatives see day in day out um, uh, and I think that I think it's been really powerful and it's allowed us to do a whole range of things but we're doing all sorts of great things here. Does that, does that answer your question? No, it does. That's really helpful. I suppose you mentioned very briefly there some of the criticism that often gets levied and the kind of sense from the outside of the NHS looking in that there's almost an expectation from a patient's perspective that there will be 
rapid adoption of the most innovative tech and that it would be available at the point of access wherever it's required across the NHS. I suppose as you from your position reflect on the challenges to adoption and uptake um, of innovation, it's interesting we had um, David Lawson from um, the Director of Medical Technology at DHSC on, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and one of the big issues and challenges that he's dealing with is actually getting an accurate sense as to what represents true innovation in terms of the landscape is just so saturated with things that potentially claim to be innovative and actually creating distinction what will uh, create massive changes in terms of the way we treat a certain uh, a certain issue. Um, what are the challenges that you really see in your day-to-day work when it comes to adoption of innovation and innovative technologies? Okay, so first of all, and, and uh, as you highlight um, uh, the feedback from David, I think, and first of all, you have to know what innovation is. Yeah. And lots of people don't. And if you ask people what it is, they really struggle. And I have to say, it took me a while to find... It's not in the textbooks. You read differently. I think innovation has four key components. I think it has to be novel. That doesn't mean a new invention. It just means new to your system. So it could have been tested and trialled and proven in another country, in another hospital group, in another general practice, but it's just not there in yours. So it has to be novel. Okay, It has to add value, secondly. And that could be in terms of cost efficiency or improved clinical outcomes. So novelty value. So third thing is scalability. So it has to be spread across the system. You know, a smartphone is an innovation, but if there was only one in my pocket, it wouldn't be much use to anyone. Um, so it has to be scalable. And the last, the fourth feature, I think, is it has to empower. So it has to either empower the patients or the carers, the clinical teams looking after them in some way, maybe the management or the leadership or the commissioners of health services or even the leaders of our nation. And and if you have those four key things, novelty, value, scalability and empowerment, when you look at things that have been adopted across a very complex healthcare landscape, they've all got those core features somewhere because if it's not, why do we all carry smartphones around with it? It empowers us, doesn't it? It allows us to, oh, heaven help us, check our emails on a regular basis or keep in connection with friends and family through social media or find information that we need to, that's going to help us in what we do. It does a job. Mm. And lots of the things we're... So um, uh, I'm a big fan of Clayton Christensen, the former... Um, uh, 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 you know, probably, I mean, professor at Harvard, but I think the greatest kind of business innovation academic and leader for generations, actually, who died not so long ago. Um, and he, um, uh, you know, put a lot of um, uh, thought and time into crystallizing this. And I think, um, uh, uh, you know, it's difficult and it's a super complex system. And he spent a whole lifetime looking at why different things get adopted at different rates in different places and thinking that I you know I used to think it was a bit naive I'm happy to admit that though that when you met a government minister or the chief executive of the National Health Service there was a lever that they could pull in the center because they had their hands on the levers of power and they would pull this and suddenly it would all happen it doesn't happen like that at all 
And I think people from the outside think if only the minister said it, or if only the chief exec or the NHS said it, or the chief exec of the local trust said it, or that it will happen. It can happen like that. I think there are very few examples. There are some good ones recently. We can look at the things that went on in COVID and, you know, and vaccines where we set out on a grand challenge. But the key thing about that, everyone bought into it. We all needed that change to happen. So that was a different thing. But when you look at lots of things we might want to take up, you know, you can have a, 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 the air cover and the policy direction to try and make this happen. But actually, there's lots of independence within our system. It's not just a national health service, but it's thousands and thousands of different organisations, or each with sometimes their own separate legislation that sets them up, their own autonomy in how they operate as a business within parameters for sure. Primary care different from secondary care. Secondary care often set up slightly differently and divided in, in places. And you have to go through, it's like going in a hurdle race, isn't it? You've got to get over each hurdle and get, and if you fall over on one hurdle, it doesn't happen. So um, it's complex, it's not straightforward. So first of all, you need to define innovation and what it is, and I think it is all those things. And then you need to understand how um, kind of systems take it up. And um, one of the things I'm reminded that uh, Clayton Christensen said, it's that you do things because you, or you buy things or you change the way you do things because it does a job for you. And, and it, so what is the job that that n new value, that new novel way of doing things, that thing that's going to scale and that thing that empowers people, what job is it doing? We go out and seek things that do that, don't we? Um, and actually, being the incumbent, um, uh, you know, as in so many systems, um, where this is the way we've done it, we work in our silos. Who we all often hear that, don't we? I have to deliver my job and my job parameters to say I do this. As an organisation, we have a much broader remit. But actually, as an individual employee, I'm hired and fired on the basis of me. If you're the finance director, it's balancing the books. If you don't make sure the books are done, you've come back in, you've either broken even or made a slight profit, there's going to be real issues for you. Wider cultural development and quality of care, for example, in a healthcare organisation, are a broad distributive responsibility. But picking out one individual for to you know lose their job on the basis, that's very difficult. But if you're going to, and if you're a, clinician or a manager within the system or work within a you know a, a technology within the NHS or something you can be very focused on your area so it's how can we and and you could really deliver on that but the whole system could fail and if you look at disruptive innovation another one of Christensen's things um, the um, you know the incumbent market players then get disrupted if you look at the car industry it was Toyota isn't it they came in with a disruptive cost-effective version and the uh, uh, people who were the market leaders at the time then get disrupted by a very uh, um, you know, cost-efficient way of delivering it. and suddenly the quality of that cost-efficient thing increases as it comes through. And so even though the people in General Motors or wherever else it was were doing really great jobs, I'm sure, no one said we're going to do a bad job or we're going to lose market share to someone else. They didn't. They all thought they were doing a great job. But it's how do you join that narrative up? And there's not, the problem is there's not one lever that when we, we have to join up outside of things like a national emergency where everyone gets behind it. And actually, we learned a lot from the pandemic about 
Um, do you know those, I, I would say one of the key insights, again, those silos, the, the walls of them melted away. People worked collaboratively across organizations. Industry stepped forward in a massive way, the life science industry, to help government step forward, organizations step forward in healthcare. Did we get it all right? Absolutely, no, we didn't. Um, but did we end up with a, the most rapid development of vaccines in history? Yeah, we did. Um, and so I think um, we can be really proud of that. So there's lots of lessons there. Have we got it all right? No. Um, uh, is it easy? No. But if you look at nature and evolution and the ecosystem we live in, it's hugely complex. And what does nature do? It runs billions and billions and billions of experiments in, you know, in genetics, really. Each day as uh, natural things kind of reproduce and grow and develop. And, and healthcare and humanity is a, a little bit like that. It's a super complex system and um, you can influence it. Of course you can and help it go in one direction or another. But um, much like you couldn't make every tree in the country turn its leaves from green to red, um, expecting every single bit of a super complex system when you issue one instruction to do it. I think So I, I think hearts and minds, really important thing. And if I were to direct people to another great thinker in this, another Harvard, I don't know why they're all from Harvard in my mind at the moment, um, but um, Bob Keegan, the professor of organisational psychology at the Harvard Postgraduate School for Education, his book, Immunity to Change, brings together 30 years of his research on how you help develop change in large organisations, business units, teams, and then individuals, and how our brains are kind of set up psychologically to actually resist change, and how you then overcome that. So I apply lots of that theory from both Christensen and from Keegan here in the work we do. And I think we've got lots of great examples where we've been not just nationally leading in the adoption of innovation, but internationally leading in some of the things we've done. But have we got it all right? Is the job done and finished? No, are we learning lots? Has any health system across the world cracked this? I've visited most, I haven't managed to get to Australia yet, but I've spent lots of time on teleconferences with the people there. Um, no one place has done it. And so I still, the NHS is leading and leading in a number of ways in what we're doing in healthcare and life science innovation around how we're supporting that and getting that to grow. Um, but it's still a work in progress. I'm interested in uh, the point you raised around the importance of partnership when it comes to the adoption of innovation. And you mentioned industry as, as a key part of that that came to the fore in the COVID-19 pandemic. I just wonder whether in your interactions with industry and discussions around the adoption of innovation, whether is that sense uh, from an industry perspective that there is that magic lever that could be pulled? Is there an awareness of the fragmentation of the system and the level of complexity that exists? And I suppose just to broaden that question a little bit, in terms of how industry can support the NHS going forward, in terms of not only the innovation that it produces and manufactures, but also in terms of how it engages with the NHS when it comes to partnership, mm. if there were key thoughts that you'd want to share there. I think most of the experienced industry that have been around for a while um, get it and understand it's complex. 
And much like I was talking about the silos in um, healthcare organisations where you individuals have to deliver their jobs in industry, it's the same. You know, it's about can we sell more product? Can we raise our share price? Can we do um, uh, things that are more profitable for us? And I understand that. Why I like the life science industry so much is it's a good industry. It's not like drinking or gambling or something else. Um, it's actually, they're trying to do things that are really good, generally speaking, for humanity. They don't always get it right. But um, some of the advances in, whether it's in genomics or in pharmacology or in immunotherapy or in all sorts of things, have been truly transformational for people. Like, now, the NHS can't do that. And it wouldn't have done it. We wouldn't have been able to, um, you know, develop and commercialise CAR-T therapy, which is transformative for people. We wouldn't have been able to develop, you know, uh, it's not our job to go and do that. We can partner with it and help discover with it. And the beauty of it is all very well <clears throat> getting academic research and publications, but it's the, the step that's different between invention and innovation it's that scaling up into a profitable enterprise, which is commonly a business, because when it can grow and sustain itself, then we can buy it regularly in the healthcare system and it can start making a difference to patients' lives. So I think I think lots of industry are a world where there's no silver bullet or, or, or lever of power that does everything. Wouldn't it be great if there was a lever of power? I, don't, I think I want to get my hands on that. Maybe you wouldn't, I don't know. Um, but... Uh, there are a um, and do they understand its fragment? I think in our country, lots of people do understand the NHS is a complex organisation made up. Internationally, when people look at it, they see one national health service, and maybe which is why one of the best markers of um, uh, pieces of well observations I've made, and then pieces of advice I give um, foreign life science companies wanting to set up in the UK is have a UK presence. Get someone on your team that understands the UK healthcare system, the commercial life science scene here, because they will really help advance you. And a number of companies have done that. Um, uh, an example um, recently, someone who were on our National Innovation Accelerator was Healthy.io, who do digitization of urine dipsticks and a whole range of other point-of-care diagnostics um, at home for patients. And they brought a, a, a really great individual in to lead development in this country. And, and they really aced it with that. Um, and the last one was um, um, just in terms of what partnership looks like with industry going forward. Okay, so my understand, my observation, I would say, over my time here at NHS England, but also more broadly, if you want to work with someone, you've got to understand what's on their agenda. You've got to understand what their challenges are, what issues they're facing. If someone just comes to you and says, "What well, we've got this great solution, why won't you buy it? I'm going... You don't understand the problems I'm facing. You don't understand the things that are keeping me up at night, the, the whole range of things. So I think if you want to work in partnership with the NHS, and we are 100% open for that, you have to understand the core challenges we're facing. And I think there are six of them at the moment. I would, And the number of... So I see lot. I probably see... Well, I think each year it's got to be close to 2,000 different companies because they come and pitch to me at conferences and we host sessions and... Um, I see lots of people here as well. And it's quite remarkable. I can't recall one that could name all six. Often they'll get one or two of these things. So 
our first challenge, they're not in any particular order, I would say they're all big challenges for us, is workforce. We have a 10 to 12% full-time equivalent vacancy rate in the NHS, and therefore we might have capability within our staff. We've got some incredibly bright, capable staff to help us do pathway change and transformation. It's not just about buying things, it's about getting them into care pathways and taken up. But actually the capacity to do that can be really limited and often staff are taken on to core delivery and sometimes innovation and new ways of working can be the first casualty when you've got workforce shortages and operational pressures. So workforce is number one. Number two is the reboot following the pandemic. Seven million plus people on waiting lists, about, I think it's 75 to 80% of those waiting for outpatient appointments. It's a huge challenge for us. So if industry are aware, well, I've got to do something to help the workforce, got to do something that can help the reboot and recovery of services. The next one, it was laid bare by the pandemic, number three, is health inequalities. Um, so many things that we didn't, you know, like oxygen saturation probes, for example, a technology that works pretty well if you've got non-pigmented skin or lightly pigmented skin, but if you have pigmented skin, once your oxygen saturation drops below low 90s into the late 80s, it's not as reliable. Who designed it like that? I don't, it wasn't ever thought of because we didn't build thinking in to innovation around how will it affect different populations, whether that's on um, the basis of your ethnic and background or on the basis of age or on the basis of gender. And, and there are so many things around that, aren't there? Um, next one is net zero. We have committed, I think it's 2040 to be net zero as an organisation and then in our supply chains by 2045. And thinking that NHS organisations individually have the ability to understand how an industry supply chain is going to get to net. We, I, I think you've made an assumption too far. But can we work together in partnership and look at those things? So you won't be selling to the NHS. Current policy says in 2045, if your supply chain is not a net zero, it's a big commitment. And I think we were the first nation to go forward and say that. Um, so the next one is what I call the long-term plan point five, which is about how do we um, have the best health you can have through your whole life, how we can focus on wellness and prevention, how we can have the highest quality care pathways for you from the moment you're born right into a, a healthy, independent old age. Um, that's managing more things in the community, empowering patients and their families and carers around long-term conditions and management, all those things that were captured in the long-term plan. And the last one, point six, is cost efficiency. The finance director's really pleased with that one. Has to be. You know, uh, is that 196 billion last year? I think it was our budget. Um, and we can't, I keep saying we can't carry on doing more for more. But if you look at American healthcare spending, I think when I was in America 10 years ago, it was $1.7 trillion. And everyone said, it can't go up. It's going to be more than defense spending sooner. I want to say America is north of $3 trillion now. And you're just going, wow. It's just, it's not sustainable. So we have to do different things. And the beauty of the NHS is it's like a crucible. It's a melting pot of not just different, um, uh, you know, people from different cultural backgrounds and socioeconomic backgrounds and groups, but actually, I think we're five years ahead of many bits of the world 
in seeing the problems and they're going to come and hit America and Europe and Asia. We're just going to get there first. And therefore, there's a real opportunity for us to be helping develop radical new solutions around healthcare. We're starting to see it in small places, aren't we? Um, our uh, virtual wards, virtual hospitals program. How can we utilize technology? Why does everyone have to be housed in hospitals when actually there are things we could do with people closer to their homes, with their carers and loved ones and, and networks around them support? I know where I'd rather be. I'd rather be at home for sure, if I can be, and if I can be safely there. So why shouldn't we be allowing that? Why shouldn't that be mainstream? And we've got lots of ambitious um, things around that. So. I think if industry want to work in part, we can't do it on our own, 100% no. We, we don't, that's not what we're designed to do. We wouldn't be developing new drugs and new implants and new all sorts of things that we need to do. But we are the largest unified healthcare system in the history of the world, we still are. We're the largest single spender on healthcare as a single payer anywhere still. And um, that gives us an opportunity of scale for testing and trialing. And I think we're world leading in what we do in testing and trialing. What's our ambition as we move into that? We in the next 75 years and beyond, we have to become world leading in adopting and scaling. I think that's the thing we're really coming to. We've got a whole range of programs we're focusing on now that are going to help us do that and be world leading in that. But so we've got a great history, haven't we? I gave you some of the examples earlier, Britain inventing things, but though nearly all of them were commercialized abroad. Look at CT and MRI scanners in Japan, in Europe, in the United States, not here, not commercialized here. So many things in our history has that happened with. Could look at televisions and computers, same story, isn't it? So we want, we need to bring some of that here. We need to grow our life science industry and support it. We've got the blessing and permission of um, uh, you know, our government or the leadership in the NHS. So we're, it's not easy, it's not straightforward, it's not all going to be done tomorrow, but is there a willingness? Absolutely there is. And is it going to be easy? No, it's not. Will you have to roll your sleeves up, get out of your seats and come and join us on the pitch and, 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 and you know, work with us? 100%. We're up for it. It's been a fascinating conversation. And I think um, those different points that you've outlined around uh, firstly, what you define as innovation and how you define that, but also in terms of how our listeners and those that listen to the podcast from an industry perspective can better engage and support the NHS going forward. I've no doubt that that kind of outlining them in those six categories will be really helpful. So thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for the conversation. Am I allowed to give you one top pick for the next 75 years? Yes, do, do, so please. People are, I'm giving a talk at the NHS Confed Expo later in the year. And I've been asked to talk about what might the NHS look like in, in some, do you know, the biggest problem we're going to face in 75 years that we don't have now is currently in the UK, we have 15,000 centenarians. At the turn of the next century, or in 2098, when the NHS is 150 years old, there'll be 1.5 million. <gasps> How are we going to deal with that? So that's a huge thing. And there'll be all sorts of technologies. But one of the technologies I've seen that's just a no-brainer and people are going to hold me up and they're going to go, oh, he made that prediction. It was, do you know, I've seen this and I'm going, it's such a no-brainer to take up. I've, go on, can you guess it? What do you think it's going to be? I wouldn't want to hazard uh, a guess. <laughs> it's it's yeah. so, drones. So I can see drone logistics 
if you look at what's happened in Africa with Zipline now being able to get all sorts of things to people in remote areas that couldn't, how could we utilize that in being able to get services more into communities and remote parts of the country, but also getting traffic off our roads? 5% of traffic on the roads is the NHS. So if I was, to t I, I wouldn't normally back one horse. There are a few, I've got a few really good things. I'm sure virtual consultation will really be mainlining as well. But the, um, I think drones, we don't see them now. I think we're going to see a lot more of them in the next 75 years. I can see like a highway, a national air grid, if you like, of uh, autonomous drone logistics starting in healthcare and helping people get the healthcare they need closer to where they need it. I think that, that particular example as well uh, just speaks to how mainstream adoption of technology outside of the health service can be applied to help deal with some of the challenges that the NHS faces. So, no, thank you for that and thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for asking me to join. Thank you for listening to this episode of the From the Frontlines podcast. If you have any thoughts about our conversation or would like to get involved in a future episode, please email fromthefrontline at healthcomsconsulting.co.uk. If you'd like to chat about our work as one of the UK's top health and social care public affairs agencies, please visit our website, healthcomsconsulting.co.uk. Thanks again for listening.